Hello, my freaky, kinky ladies and lads. Cool, it's debatable. Okay. <laughs> well, welcome to another episode of Hybrid Unlimited. This is me, Steffi Cohen. And Hayden Bo. And today we have a good friend of mine. His name is David Akinen. He is a Venezuelan Jew who I met back in... Man, was it probably like elementary school? He moved to the States when he was 13 and he is just such an inspiration, has had such an interesting life and upbringing and has worked in so many different with doing so many different things that we'll cover. But on this podcast, we basically talk about his his uh, journey moving from Venezuela to the States, to New York, to Chicago, to where's Harvard? Boston. Boston. And now he's living, he's been living in Namibia for the last six years. Um, this guy's a huge philanthropist. So his main goal in life has always been to finding ways to find a way to give back to people in need while at the same time attempting to make it profitable. Uh, obviously not only for, so he can support his, his life, but also so he can continue giving back to other people in need and, and finding ways to provide value to, to, um, uh, underserved populations. So it's really interesting to me that ever since he was in high school, that's when he started getting involved with non-for-profits. He started a non-for-profit business called Shoes for Africa, where he was delivering shoes to a, a community uh, in Africa. And then every th single thing that he did in his life was kind of in preparation for his bigger goal that he explains, he didn't know exactly what it was going to be, but he knew kind of, he had a general sense of direction of where he wanted to take his life and pretty much everything he did from the degree that he got in college to the internships that he did to working in wall street, financial banking, uh, all the way to moving to Namibia and starting his own construction business. We talk a lot about failures, about accountability, about the importance of being persistent and just David has so such an amazing insight into what you know how, how to be successful that I think this is an extremely valuable conversation to listen to for anyone and how to be successful in a very non-traditional way, way as well and man I thought we were busy but it is unbelievable the first of all the number of businesses that he's involved with uh, but also the number of different areas of business and different types of businesses that he's involved with. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. A brick manufacturing company to, to yeah, real he, estate. Well, he's all over the supply chain for construction in general, but you know, uh, he's in the digital space as well. Uh, the stuff he's doing with clothing and shoes and food delivery. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, he's a uh, really an interesting and amazing guy. Yeah. This podcast is uh, sponsored by Ghost Strong Equipment. This uh, Ghost Strong Equipment is basically your one-stop shop if you're a serious power lifter or strength athlete. They make everything to the specifications that you want with the designs that you want and the colors that you want. They can customize every piece to have your logo. And if you can think of it, they can make it. So definitely check them out there at Ghost Strong Equipment on Instagram and www GoStrongEquipment.com. Yep. So sit back and uh, enjoy this wonderful conversation with my friend David. Can anything for me? I recently had Michelle Poller in our podcast, and you know, very similar thing. You know, we we all come from 
traditional kind of families and traditional lines of work, you know, being Hispanic and being Jewish, like the expectation is that you grow up and you go to law school or you become a doctor or I don't know, you get your PhD and then you climb yourself up in the corporate ladder or whatever that might be. Right. So we're kind of outliers and rebels in that sense, even though. I think we're we're like the, the the white horses, you know. We're rebels, but we're the good kind of rebels. We're the, the ones the dark horses. The, what did I say? The light horses. The, the white, white horses. horses. <laughs> yeah, the rebels are the dark horses. Yeah, but like I'm saying, we're like rebels, but we're not the bad ones. So that's well, why I said like a, white. You have like a white mane, maybe. Black horse with a white mane. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? Right. Am I alone? I, I do. I'm, I'm, no, I'm, I'm agreeing. I'm, I'm agreeing with both of you. Yeah, we're the white and black horses. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you know some what I mean. Some of us are good. Some of us are bad. So yeah, it's hard to generalize. <laughs> what I'm saying is, we're using our power to better society, in one way or another. So Michelle Poller think, with her yeah. whole with her whole um, no fears campaign, getting people outside their comfort zones, facing their fears and becoming better versions of, of themselves. You are in Namibia. What the hell are you doing? How does a Venezuelan Jew end up in Namibia, bro? I don't even know where that is. <laughs> yeah. oh, how does a Venezuelan Jew not end up in Namibia? <laughs> That's that's the question because there's three of us now. Two of my brothers have joined them, and that's most of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, why not? That's that's the question I always ask people, and they ask me why. Because when I when I when I I like your question, which was respectful and worthy of of wanting to know more, which is how. But a lot of people ask me the opposite, which is why. And I think I think the real question is how, not why. So we, so I how? definitely, hold on, hold on, hold on. I definitely want to dig deep into that, but I want to sure. preface the conversation with like his story because I find it so amazing. Sure, but before yeah. that, we started talking about how we met. I love this story. So this had to have been, yeah, like you said, 10 or 11 years ago. I was in Chicago. I had just been dumped by my high school sweetheart. You remember that? Though? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You, were, you were crushed. You were heartbroken. <laughs> I was heartbroken. I was young. My life was over. You know, my high school sweetheart had dumped me, cheated on me, whatnot. And uh, my sister who's... <laughs> wow, it's now online. <laughs> <laughs> my sister who's, you know, he's she's my second mom. She's like, Steph, I'm flying you over to Chicago. You're going to have a great time. You're going to have a great weekend. You're going to go out. You're going to go to a, a frat house. You're going to go to a university, a college party. I don't know what you're going to do, but you're going to get out of this slump. And I'm like, all right, cool. So I, she flew me over to Chicago and then she arranged that I go meet David for a Shabbat dinner. And I'm like, this is so lame. I'm going to go to the University of Chicago for a Shabbat dinner. Like this guy's probably a nerd. <laughs> This guy's really a nerd. What are we going to do? And it ended up being an epic party. Epic party. There was no Jews at the Shabbat dinner. It was all my Latino (laughs) friends. And I convinced the Chabad rabbi to give me a bunch of food for free to launch a party. And then everyone showed up. Uh, it was amazing. So that yeah. was that was the beginning yeah. of uh, you. Ma- you made some good friends in Chicago. I mean, dude, some of my friends ended up being close friends of yours, y- dude. I made the. I met so many amazing people there that I kept in close contact with for years after, and some of them I still keep in touch with, like Sod, for example. So yeah. yeah, that's what I was thinking about. I was thinking about her. Yeah, that's yeah, no. cool. Amazing. So give me a little insight. So you moved to the States from Venezuela when you were how old? I was 13. My brother, we're four brothers. My okay. mom is actually from Morocco and my dad's Spanish. So all four of us were born in Venezuela. Um, and when I, when I was 11, actually, we were kidnapped. And that was around the time that a lot of people 
were still thinking Venezuela was a good place. Chavez had just entered into power. That was about 2001. Mm. My parents didn't think it was time to leave yet, but about a year and a half later, Venezuela went into a massive chaos, six months of no school, very similar to this crisis, lockdown style, coronavirus style, except there wasn't a virus in the street. There was just a lot of insecurity. Mm -hmm. And from there, I, my, we moved to the States. I was about 13, 2003. And, mm -hmm. You know, we kicked off, started high school there. And um, yeah, from high, high school was an amazing experience. I went to a public school in Miami. I went from going to this small private Jewish school to a 4,000 people public school. There was uh, little princesses and thugs in my school. You could find anyone and everyone from the whole range. And that was an amazing experience. That and the amazing opportunities you get from just an American public education. I, you know, you can choose whichever way to take it. You can be a great varsity sports player. You can be, um, you, you can be a nerd and study computer science and go to university instead of high school and they'll pay for it. Or you can just get through it, you know, and make friends and have a normal high school experience. Wow. So yeah, that, that's, that's where we started, Miami. Uh, Which one did you do? I definitely wasn't a varsity sports player. My, you know, <laughs> my freshman year, I tried soccer, which I remember Steffi was very good. And, you know, it was a great workout, but it was impossible to make the team. So I realized that wasn't going to be me. Um, but I still stayed around playing JV because I liked the sport. And I think when you like something, you should never quit, even if you didn't make the big leagues, you know. Um, it stays as part of your life. I was a bit more of the, the nerd that did all the classes and took all the things and, and had big dreams. And mm -hmm. one of my big dreams was to go to Africa one day and be an entrepreneur. Really? And I started something called Shoes for Africa when I was in high school with a friend. And we collected thousands of shoes to send to an impoverished community in West Africa. And that was my first experience with the continent I'm in now. Why Africa? You know, Steffi, when I was in 10th grade, I found out you could take something called dual enrollment in America. Like you can actually go to university while you're in high school and your high school has to pay for your university classes. So I took a class called international relations and my teacher was from the Ivory coast. That's my first time like actually hanging out with an African. Um, and then he, all he did was talk about Ivory coast and the opportunities and he forgot that he was teaching something else. <laughs> and I le that's when we started Choose for Africa, that, that summer. I, I left there inspired. I said, wow, there's a continent full of opportunity, like where you can go build roads that haven't been built, buildings that haven't been erected, but also help people that are in more impoverished situations. So I found a mix of I want to make money and have a big impact in my life. And in America, I feel like you can also do this, but we are so chartered into these paths of you can either go work at an NGO if you want to have impact or go to Wall Street if you want to make money. Mm -hmm. But no, you know, it's, th that's not true. And I guess I took the extreme route, which was let me go to a place where I'm going to be sure that I can do both, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, I, that was a dream at the time. But, you know, we started with an NGO. We started collecting shoes and, and, and finding out where to send them. And then I went to college and forgot all about that because I got into the hustle. I, I was trying to recruit into jobs. I, I did a summer at Harvard and then I ended up transferring and went to the University of Chicago. Um, I was super lucky. Why did I you transfer? What's that? Why did you transfer from Harvard? I got a full ride from a program called QuestRich. So if anyone in your program is in high school or has a brother or sibling in high school, 
just Google Quest Bridge. It's an amazing NGO out of California and they match you to get a full scholarship to a list of like 150 universities. Harvard wasn't one of the ones that you could find there, but there's anything from Yale University of Chicago to Pomona College. I mean, name a university, very likely by now they, they have a partnership. And at the time, I wanted to study economics. The University of Chicago cost about a quarter million US dollars to go to school. Um, I think one of your sisters went to the business school there. So you can ask her what, if she has loans still that she's paying. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, this was life-changing. I had a few scholarships that I had gotten, like Coca-Cola scholarship, Toyota scholarship, that were like 20K, 10K. But for a university that cost a quarter million dollars, that's not going to get you through. You know, were those, and my uh, parents, as in, I mean, what's up? Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. No, my parents were immigrants. I mean, they left Venezuela. They didn't have U.S. dollar savings. They didn't have anything that could, you know, they told me, try to get, you know, Florida scholarships and stay in state, you know, don't go anywhere. So for mm -hmm. me, that was life changing. I mean, the opportunity there was amazing. And this is why I'm making a remark that if anyone knows anyone in high school, like definitely Google Questbridge, reach out to me. I'll put you in touch. I'll help you understand the program. That's awesome. But a quarter million dollars doesn't come in that easy. You know? No. Were, uh, were those scholarships you were getting, were those uh, academic scholarships? So Coca-Cola wasn't. Coca-Cola, they have a, it's called the Coca-Cola Scholars Foundation. I actually did a podcast with them that they just launched. It's very cool. Very cool scholarship foundation that they have that they choose. I think when I was chosen, they would choose four people in every state that were doing something cool, like a big community project but that, that were also leaders in their community. So they looked at your whole profile, but they were looking for service people, people who had done service projects. Okay. And th that program was also amazing in so many ways. I mean, every year they have conferences, there's a network, every month you get an email from them. They call you on your cell phone to find out how you're doing 10 years after you graduated high school. Um, so it's an amazing program to be a part of. But the QuestBridge scholarship was three things in it, academic, leadership, and financial need. I mean, if your parents are super wealthy, very unlikely you will get the Questbridge scholarship. Mm -hmm. But if, 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 you know, in America, I don't know what's wealthy these days because I've been so, I've been six years in Africa now. So for me, like <laughs> when somebody tells me they make $2,000 a month, I'm like, wow, that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> wow, eh? So, um, so, you know, one thing that I, that I wonder is, you know, I had, I, I went, there was a time period in my life where I was really into giving and getting more, you know, I traveled to Nepal. I stayed there for two months, uh, and you know, had like this, like philanthropy stage of my life where, where all I wanted to do was help others in need. Um, and I got a lot of backlash when I took that trip because especially from people within the community or like Hispanic people that would be like, or even people in the States, they would say things like, oh, uh, you know, why do you feel like you need to travel all around the, like to the opposite side of the world to help people when literally you can go to Overtown here in Miami and find people who are in need, who also need help or go back yeah. to your country and help people who are in need there, right? Like why, why don't you help your own kind before you travel to the opposite side of the world to help others? And I mean, I guess you briefly alluded to it, uh, explaining that you were looking for obviously uh, a way to merge kind of a financial opportunity with helping people and, and making a, a bigger impact, like not just a soup kitchen and helping people and giving people food, but also providing them with either housing or uh, job opportunities, et cetera. So where do you stand in all of that? 
Well, it's, I've never been asked this question, but I have been given the comment. When we started Shoes for Africa, somebody asked me, why wasn't I sending shoes to Venezuela? And my first response, which was a bit feisty, was why are you not sending shoes to Venezuela? Right? Like, who are you to judge? And that's the typical thing. It's like people love judging others, right? Like, you, you're, you guys are, have an amazing program with nutrition, with working out. You do so many cool things. But you don't see a fat guy and, like, tell him, like, you know, or you don't have somebody else and you'd like judge them because of their weight or something like that. You kind of try to find a way to work with people to make them better with what they already do. So I, I think it's very rough to judge someone for their dreams in general. And when some people used to come to me when we had Shoes for Africa and tell me that, I used to immediately ask them, what are you doing? You know, before you come like look at my space. And I think that's what you should do or anyone should do when, they're, when they feel connected to a cause. My whole life, Steffi, I've been helping my community. I still do whether it's by giving money back in Venezuela in Hebraica, which I do every year, and whether it's by staying connected to people and trying to mentor people who are much younger than me and want to learn where to go. So I don't think you ever disconnect from where you come from. And when I was in Chicago and you met me, I was building a baseball stadium in Chicago in an inner city community of Canaryville in the south side of Chicago, and we raised 100,000 US dollars with two friends. We were not from there. We built a stadium. It's still running. Every summer, 300 kids play there. When I was in college, we were doing a program in Pakistan. Um, we raised money from Coca-Cola and Tetra Pak, and we helped, we raised, I don't know, 30,000 US dollars, and we helped flood victims. When wow. I, you know, we helped somebody in Haiti. Every day I talk about my country, and I think that's my way of giving back about Venezuela. Yeah. But, you know, I think you also have... Oops, lost in there. Awesome. We lost I you there for a sec, that David. by coming here, I could pursue and and accomplish accomplish so much more. You know, yeah. Um, we, you know, we have a company today in Namibia. I, by the way, I, I worked in the U.S. I I worked at Google for about two years. What did you I do at Google? In, sorry. What did you do at Google? I worked at Google in California in online sales and operations when we were like when when DoubleClick was acquired and they were launching AdSense programs. And then I worked in the Chicago office at Google in direct sales operations and in, in food products, basically. So we dealt with Procter & Gamble, Oreo, any other company you can think of in the food product space to try to convince them to increase their marketing dollar. And I loved what I was doing, but I, I wasn't challenged enough. I did, and all I could think about was what else could I be doing? And that's what kept driving my mind to the next place. And then I, I, I had a startup in college, which was... We made an app that you could send somebody a postcard, flip it around the picture, write a message, press send. It would get printed and be sent. At the time, that didn't exist. You could go to the app store and you type postcard. We were the only app. Today, there's like 20 apps that do that. They're amazing. I have 10 of them for Mother's Day. I sent like 10 women that I love that are Mother's Mother Day cards, you know? But we, we lost money doing that. And I realized I wasn't good at what I was doing. And somebody gave me amazing advice, which was, if you want to launch a company, you got to learn how money works. <laughs> and I asked him, how do I do that? And most times you ask people for advice, they don't give you the advice. They just beat around the bush and give you your options back to you. But this guy said, quit your job at Google, forget the startup and go work at a bank. Go learn how big banks lend money, borrow money, merge companies, do that. And I took that advice to heart and I moved to New York I spent three years working at Credit Suisse in investment banking. So I spent my time in Wall Street. But every one of my vacations, 
I took it to Africa. So whenever somebody would go to Cancun or I don't know, Curaçao or even our own beaches in Venezuela, I would look, I would book my 10 day trip to Nigeria or I would book my 10 day trip to Angola because I had this dream that I wanted to go build a company doing something, whatever. I didn't care if I was an oil guy drilling for oil or I was building housing. I didn't know what it was going to be, but I wanted to do it in a place that was a lot more virgin. And I had a big problem. I didn't know what I was good at. My biggest thing is I even felt in a way like an imposter. Here I am working at a bank, making all this money, but I don't know what my skill set is. I was good at interviewing, so I got hired. But now how do I, how do I actually find out what I'm good at, you know? And I think traveling gave me that answer. The more I traveled and everything was a serendipitous experience, but the more I traveled and the more I met people in politics and in business, the more I saw need, the more I saw opportunity, the more I felt ready to take that step and go be an entrepreneur and, and try the different things that we do today. What exactly about traveling allowed you to discover your skills? You know, I always thought a lot of my friends wanted vacation to come so they could disconnect from their lives. And I, I tried to use vacation to do the opposite, was to connect with my life, to, to try to find out what, one, what I was good at and two, what I was interested in. So I'll give you an example. My first trip to Africa was in Nigeria. I came from the corporate world in New York City where I was never invited to meetings in my bank. I was always at two, three in the morning wearing a suit. Imagine as if I was going to go to a wedding, but nobody got to see me in a suit. I was sitting behind a desk typing behind Excel. And now I'm being sent you know, on a flight to Nigeria on my own and like what I thought would be like a weird vacation. I don't know anyone. And as soon as I land, two people picked me up with machine guns at the airport because I was going to go meet some politician who was expecting me. And I was like, oh shit, I'm in trouble. I don't know where I am. <laughs> I put myself out of my comfort zone. I went from a desk on the 22nd floor of a bank to two machine gun guys. I was what, 22, pale, pale white because I'd been without sun for like, I don't know, six months. <laughs> And I get picked up and I get put into a land cruiser and I drive to this place and I meet a politician. And when I arrive, people are like kissing his hand because he's some famous politician. And I gave him a hug. I was like, what's up, man? And I gave him a hug and, and it broke the ice. And I realized over the course of five, six days that I was there before I went to another city that number one, I had a voice. Every meeting I walked into I found myself more and more being able to express myself. My ideas were being heard. I wasn't being turned down like my bosses used to. Um, I would see things that were obvious to me, but the people around me wouldn't see the opportunity. But then I would see things that were not obvious to me that others made opportunities of. Mm -hmm. You know, I would go to markets and there was a guy renting horses to people to, to go move faster on the side road because the markets were closed. I mean, little businesses that inspired me on the spot to think that's crazy. Who would bring a, you know, a horse to a market? But at the same time, I saw the way banks were operating, how people were transacting with their cell phone. I mean, when's the last time you went to a supermarket um, and paid with your cell phone without actually showing your cell phone to the supermarket? Um, in 2012, that wasn't a thing in America. Today, in our construction business, and I'll tell you hopefully a little bit about what we do here, but mm -hmm. um, we have 88 employees in the construction site. All, half of them get paid on their cell phone. 
Some of them don't even have bank accounts. They go to the bank, they press four numbers that their cell phone sends them on the spot when they're near the ATM and they withdraw cash. You know, like, and they don't have a smartphone. That's a guy without a smartphone, by the way. It's a, it's like a little Nokia phone. You were able to withdraw from, from that. So it's, it's unbelievable um, the amount of things you can find that when you travel if you look to connect with yourself rather than disconnect from what you, who you are. That is such a powerful message. And I, I love that in so many different ways. I think you hit, you hit the nail right on the head. You know, a lot of people want to escape their lives, escape their thoughts, escape their, their, they, like they don't just don't the grind. look. Yeah. They grind and, and just go to places that are, that make them totally mindless instead of going to a place that inspires them or going to a place that, you know, makes them think differently. So I think that's just, I, I love that. I'm going to start applying that to it. Yeah. yeah. I thought it was actually a neat point that you made early on about, um, people kind of criticizing where you decide to allocate help. Yeah. And I just wanted to touch on it because I think it's important that most of the causes out there, they're good causes. And it's very difficult to determine who deserves what sort of help. So I think as long as you're offering help in general, there's no, you can't really be faulted for that, you know, Absolutely. and there's no way you can make everybody happy. But as long as, you know, you, you felt connected to to a place that you wanted a place that was more virgin and, and uh, you know, less developed so you can make a bigger impact. And I think that makes total sense. I don't think there should be any sort of reason why you have to, you know, donate to one place versus another. It's, it's just what you identify with. I do want to ask you a question, David. And that is, you know, something that I've experienced in my life as well is I call it kind of my discovery phase. So I went through a time where just like you, I just, I had a general idea of where I wanted to go. You know, my goal and my dream has always been to, uh, you know, be a figure of authority in a field. Obviously I'm passionate about fitness, health and fitness. So that's, that's kind of the direction I wanted to go. I wanted to stay involved in sports. I wanted to create something special, whether that was a product or a service. Um, and you know, during that discovery phase for me, uh, it involved a lot of trial and error, trying different things and putting myself in different situations and involved a lot of quitting. And I talk about this a lot on, you know, podcasts where I'm a, a guest at and, uh, you know, that's, I was heavily criticized by people around me, whether that's a significant other or my family or, or friends who would, would think that I'm a quitter because I would go and I would invest a certain period of time at something, whether that's, you know, a new job or, or a new project or a different sport. And then I would quit in their eyes. So, you know, I, based on your storyline, uh, you know, there was a lot of that during your discovery phase, when you were trying to figure out what you were good at, what your skills were, did you ever feel like a quitter when you would s step back from something or from a project or a, or a job, or did you just understand that that was just kind of part of what you want, you, what you had to do in order to discover who David Akinen really is? A hundred percent. Well, I'm like smiling and you can't see my, my camera, but it's, it's quite interesting. You, you bring that up. I mean, when I got the job at Google, even family, friends, colleagues, everyone was like, wow, this guy's going to be a tech guy. And then boom, he quits Google. It's like, why would you quit Google? Are you crazy? Google's the thing. I was like, dude, I don't feel challenged. Like, what do, how do you know what I'm feeling on the inside? This is my path. This is my journey. And I'm going to explore it to the best of my ability. Mm -hmm. Then I went to work at a bank and what I did different was I told everyone at the bank on day one, I'm going to learn how money works and move to Africa. So in a year, <laughs> most of my friends had actually, most of my friends had actually quit. And I 
went to my boss and I told him I'm moving to Nigeria a year in. I went to quit. And my boss told me, don't quit. Because, you know, you're, you know, I got my job at, at the bank. No, nobody wanted to hire me because I was a tech guy. And I thought, forget it, man. I'm not going to let, I'm not going to let a, a label of something that, that also happens a lot. You get labeled because you did something and now you're not doing it anymore. So you quit from it, but then everyone's trying to label you as what you did before. So I wrote a letter to the CEO. I showed up at a meeting where he was speaking and I gave it to him and he actually picked it up and he, I overwent the recruiters who didn't want to help me. And that's how I ended up getting the job at the bank. What did that letter say? Um, What? What did that letter say? It was a one page letter saying, I tried to talk to his recruiters, but I'm launching my career and I want to learn how money works. And if he's a global bank and wants the global businesses to succeed, he needs people like me who have a mindset of wanting to be a global business owner one day to have started at his bank so I can come back and bank with him. Mm-hmm. And then the guy called me and said, I love your idea. Come work with us. <laughs> I just flew to New York. They interviewed me. I got 20 interviews and wow. no one asked me a technical question. Thank God, because I had no idea how to answer them. Um, <laughs> so all their questions is like, hey, how do you know the CEO? It's like, oh, you know, I know him personal, personal, whatever. And then eventually I got the job. But a year in, I still hadn't figured out how my job worked. And I still hadn't figured out how money worked. But I was so pulled to quit and go to Africa and try this. And my boss said, you told me you wanted to learn how money works. Why would you quit now? Imagine. I went in with a mindset of already letting people know, not that I'm a quitter, but that this is a stage in my life. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes that's another way to rephrase that. Mm -hmm. At least for yourself. Who cares what other people think? I think that's another important point. And you know what happened next is one of the most serendipitous things. And it teaches you that being open-minded and outspoken about your goals and your path is one of the most important things. My boss told me, how would you like to move to South America and help us open the Credit Suisse office there? So you can try your entrepreneurship thing. I was 23, Steffi. And he said, you can try your entrepreneurship thing, but then you go open that office in South America. And I moved to Chile for a year. I postponed my Africa thing, my dream or whatever I was going to go do, which I still didn't know what it was. And I went down not knowing what I was doing, but given an opportunity because I was able to open my mouth and speak up, you know? Mm-hmm. And by the way, in Namibia, God, have I been a quitter? Like I've tried so hard, so many times, so many things in construction. I failed. I get up and I try again and I quit for a bit and I try it again. And I had a funding partner that, you know, in the end turned out not to be who I expected it to be. And I had to restart my company from scratch. But what people see is you leaving something or, or failing at something. What they don't see is the hustle. They don't see that you, tr- that you got up again and that you built something from that. And everything you've done before has gotten you to where you are now. It's part of it. It's not that you left it and you quit it. I was at Google and my entire, we have three different companies in Namibia. All of them are tech based. Because I have a tech idea and a tech inspiration. I was in Credit Suisse. We borrow money from the banks. We do financial transactions. We speak like bankers in construction. So, no, I didn't quit finance and I didn't quit. I took it with me. That's, mm-hmm. that's maybe a different way to, to rephrase. And I tell that to people who told me, you left Wall Street. I said, no, I took Wall Street with me, dude. I love that. Yeah. I love that so much. That's a good perspective, yeah. Yeah. And um, 
On the topic of people not seeing the hustle and not seeing the grind and what you had to go through to get to where you are, you know, the idea that I have of David Akinnon is this guy who always succeeds and always gets what she, what he wants and what he sets his mind to. So were you, I'm just curious, and this is just me personally, did you ever like interview at a place and didn't get the job or, or, or apply to a school who, who, <laughs> who didn't let you in? Serious question. <laughs> Are you kidding? No, I mean, dude, I don't the know. Most, I'm the guy, Steffi, I'm the guy with the most rejections in this world. That's the reason. <laughs> I, that's the reason you see some of the great successes, you know, because like, yeah, how was I able to build a bunch of houses? Because I went to every town in this country to try to buy land before I built my first house. And then eventually somebody decided to sell me land. When I was interviewing for jobs at, at the bank, I got turned down by every bank. Every bank told me, you don't know anything about finance. How can we hire you? You don't know, you don't have the technical skill set we need here. Now you remember, wow, that guy works in Wall Street. Yeah, because I tried, tried, tried. I'm telling you, I must have gone through at least 100 interviews my junior year to get into finance. There's a program in, in university, in case you have like listeners from university who are interested in finance, called SEO, Sponsors for Educational Opportunity. And there's another one called MLT. These two are programs made up so that you can get jobs in finance or law, even sports law. There's so many different fields. Look them up. I applied my freshman year, got rejected. I applied my sophomore year, got rejected. And in high school, all the Argentinian kids from Miami were giving me the interview questions for the SEO when you get to your third year in university. So, I mean, I was preparing for five years to get to the interviews in university to get into a bank. I was in high school preparing. I, I used to collect questions from people in university. So that by the time I was in uni, I had like a bank of questions and answers that people had in those interviews. I still got rejected. And my third year, I'm sitting in front of this lady. I remember her vividly. Andrea O'Neill. I'm going to send her this link after. <laughs> she tells me, she tells me, David, why are you back? We didn't take you the first year. We didn't take you the second year. And I said, I'm back because you're going to eventually have to take me. And if I have to postpone another year of university so that you can take me, I'm going to come back another year and interview for an internship. Boom. She took me in. She said, this guy's hustling. He's trying to get this thing. And I think that's what gets you stuff. Not because you're bright and smart and special. It's because you're hustling and you're trying for it. Mm -hmm. It's the only way. As far as, yeah. so when you, when you would come back year after year, did you try to gather kind of like a different skill set or add stuff to your resume in order to seem more appealing or, or and what were those things? Yeah. And what were those things? I mean, first of all, I, I changed, I, I thought about everything. I changed my suit. I changed the tie. I changed my haircut. One, <laughs> one, in, one year Important I wore glasses, things. one year I didn't. <laughs> um, no, but look, I was working hard. Um, I don't think in university, when you're applying for jobs, people are really looking at your grades. This is, this is real. I had a C in economics one year. Shame on and you. What a loser. No, I mean, whatever. You're applying for a bank and the guy sees a C. He's like, why should I hire you? And I said, because when I was doing something else, whether it was building a stadium in Chicago or hustling to start something in Pakistan or make a startup on the side, and I didn't have enough time to show up to class and get the better grade, The guy who's getting a better grade was not getting the skills that I got starting all these things. And that was kind of my approach. I became more aggressive with the time. I don't think my CV was changing. I was always a hustler and I always had good things on my CV that I wanted to show, but I became more confident. I think, you know, I walk into a room and one of my, one of my 
friends was telling me, man, you like eating up the room. Like, wh- where did you get the confidence to speak without thinking that they're going to think bad about you? Mm-hmm. And I said, it's because I spoke so badly so many times <laughs> that eventually I realized it doesn't matter. I'm going to speak. And none of these people are important enough. I love and that. I, I, I always use a disgusting example to my brothers and I tell them, doesn't matter how rich you are, you still wipe your own ass. <laughs> you know, like we're all the same people. And there might be like, um, what is that movie? The dictator where he has somebody do it for him. But other than, <laughs> other than that, other than that, we all are on the same boat. We're all people. We all go to sleep at night. We all wake up. And when I, that got away from me, when I sat in this interview room in front of this lady, Andrea, by the third year, she was no longer Mrs. O'Neill or the interviewer. She was this lady who I've seen three times in a row. And all she's doing is interviewing people. And I, I think by now she'll realize that I mean it and I want it. Mm-hmm. And my conversation, my third year was not an interview. It was a negotiation that I'm getting this job. Like I'm here again. My first year was like, I was afraid. I was trembling. And I think the best thing people can do is get, get out there and interview for as many jobs as you can and get turned down. And then, yeah, it's going to hurt. But eventually when you get that confidence of walking into a room and owning it because you know the process, that's what gets you the job people feeling that you're ready for it, you know? I love that. Was that, so did you used to struggle with public speaking as well? No, I I actually liked it. Um, I liked politics when I was little. I wanted to be a, I wanted to be the president of Venezuela when I was seven. What did you guys want to be when you were seven? (laughs) Hockey player. Professional soccer player. I was probably a race car driver. Well, yeah. Yeah. And what, what happened to your dreams? What happened to your dreams? I didn't know anything about driving cars. And now? Now, now you have other dreams. You've learned about the world. Um, you can, right. You can You're, you, yeah. One day. Hey, so, you're yeah, in the right place for it. Sorry. I don't know if you misunderstood me, but I said public speaking, not politics. No, I know, but that's oh, what okay. I meant is that. That because because I like politics. I, I was I mean in Venezuela in seventh grade I was like the class rep of my year. Of course you were. Uh, so I, <laughs> I had to speak and I had to do and in high school I was the president of the high school in Crop. So I had to give speeches and st- I liked it. I it's something I liked. But walking into a room one on one is actually a very interestingly different dynamic. Yeah. Because there you are sitting in front of someone who's here to judge you, not listen to you. And they're actually much more skilled at what they're doing than you. Yeah. And uh, it's quite it's quite intimidating. It's a bit of a different a different thing. Yeah. Prepping for it is 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 tough, and I recommend it as much as you can. What's uh What's your best advice for someone who's interviewing for a job or for a for a university application? For a job, look up look up what the company does. It sounds it sounds logical. But you have no idea how many times people actually see, oh, here's, an, here's a job posting for financial analyst at this company. And then they have a preconceived notion of what that company does. Mm-hmm. But then they show up to the interview. They have no idea how much money they made their year, previous year. Who's, what's the name of the CEO? Mm-hmm. What are their business lines? You know, what, what are they struggling in? Have you read 10, 15 articles about the company and how they're doing and, and what's changed in the last five years? Because when you show up to that room, they want someone who feels like part of the family, someone who really understands the company. Sure. And I remember when my first Google interview, I actually wasn't oh. supposed to be there. I, th- I thought it was a coffee chat. And the other guys who were interviewing were asked before me, what does Google do? It was interesting. It was the first question. 
And the first guy said, no, Google's a nonprofit. Make sure that people have access to information. What? <laughs> so that's what the second guy said. What? <laughs> and the interviewer got actually pissed at the second guy because he was like, oh, how can you judge the first guy? Right? It's a group interview. And, yeah. the, second guy, uh, and the second guy says, Google's actually a social enterprise. It's like a company that has a, a good... You know, and then the lady was like, David, do you have anything else to say even though you're not supposed to be in this room? Because I was a freshman. I wasn't supposed to be interviewed. And I said, yeah, actually, I think Google's the biggest advertising company in the world. You had $29 billion in revenue last year. And this was 2008. It was, the revenue was not related to phones or many of the things Alphabet does today. Um, and she said, how do you know that? And I said, well, I have a web design company and I've made, in order to keep a retention and money from my clients... Every year I charge them advertising and I use your search engine um, advertising platform AdWords. And, you know, that's probably where like most of your money comes. So she's like, wow, do you know the name of our CEO? And then she went into these details and realized, wow, this guy actually knows the company well. Mm -hmm. Then the other guys didn't. And that's literally what got me the job. You have to know the CEO of Google if you're interviewing at Google. At the time, yeah. But you have have no idea how many people haven't looked it up and they're just excited to go for an interview. Well, so yeah, you, prepping and, you know how it is. People interview for us all the time and half of them don't, even, don't, know. don't even know what we do. Yeah, they don't know anything about what you we do. You think it's common sense, uh, but, 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 yeah. but it's not. <laughs> yeah, it's unbelievable. So yeah, I think that's, I mean, there's so many other advices that people give, you know, like smile. A lot of people are so nervous they forget to smile. And, mm-hmm. and then some people hear the smiling thing and then they just smile the entire interview, which... <laughs> You know, as an interviewer, it can piss you off. <laughs> like, what, the hell? what are you? This, what is this dude smiling at? You know, like, oh. so yeah, I think yeah, I think learning about the company is number one. Okay, excellent. Yeah, I mean, even the history, like you, they love that stuff. They eat that stuff up. It was like yeah, not just I, the CEO, but the founders, right? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. No, this, yeah, um, that those are easy points in an interview. Before, um, um, yeah. go ahead. Whoever was going to speak. Yeah, so that was all I wanted to say. Oh, okay. a little bit of a little bit of history, a little bit of Wikipedia is goes a long way. Um, yeah. <laughs> before we uh, before we start talking about the present and uh, your current projects and how you got to Namibia and what exactly you're doing, I just wanted to ask one more thing. Since we were on the topic of public speaking, um, can you t- give or tell me your experience with uh, TED Talks? Yeah, I, I like as if I'm, as if I've given one or if I've heard. Yeah, no, one I mean, or... I know you've given one. So, but your experience giving a TED talk as a speaker, like what it was, it was actually like interesting. To work with them? I, I, I was in Switzerland when I was studying abroad in Paris, and then I went to Switzerland. My university sent me to give a talk at a boarding school, actually quite an expensive boarding school, and. I made a big mistake. Like I, I gave a big speech to the parents of those kids who are actually very, very wealthy. What was it and about? I spoke about, sorry. What was it about? Well, I, I was supposed to be representing the university of Chicago in a room with the Dean of Oxford and the Dean of McGill. So there you had the UK and Canada, but the Dean of the university of Chicago couldn't go. And they asked me since I was studying abroad nearby and I spoke the language, do you mind We'll pay your flight and you go to Switzerland and speak to a boarding school about American universities, you know, like they're having a parent weekend. You know, the night before, some kids I went out with who were like 17 spent 60,000 euro on a table. Yep. And I thought, and I thought, holy smokes, like 
what I could have done with that money, sending shoes to Africa or starting a business in college or building even half of a stadium in an inner city. And I thought, wow, here's like, here's a school with the most resources in the world. And, you know, being highly under-inspired, let's just say, the, the kids there. So the next day when I was speaking to the parents, I told them like, you know, they had the McGill Dean and the Oxford Dean speaking. And those two guys said, you don't need to go to school in America. That's where they ask you about your dreams. We just care about your grades. So don't, don't put your kids through that tough process. And then it was my turn to speak and I felt crossed. And I said, what are you talking about? Like asking your kids about their dreams is actually more important than their grades, you know, like actually inspiring them and wanting to see where they want to go. Obviously, the speech was a little bit more rude because I alluded to the previous night and how there was a misalignment on, his, on, on values. So I got kicked out. Oh. <laughs> they kicked me out of the speech. Shut this up. This wasn't the TED Talk. This was a speech in Switzerland <laughs> at some like, you know, high-end people. And as I get kicked out, there's a reception right after at a party. Half of the room wanted to kill me. Like, oh, you should be murdered. But the <laughs> other half of the room, yeah, they were super offended. The other half of the room was like, Hey, you have balls. Like you told it to our face that we're, we're not doing it as it is. And a lady walked up to me. She was, um, she was a banker in Canada and she was sponsoring TEDx in Canada at a, at a, at a, at a, at a location where they were doing the event. I think it was Haverdahl college. And she said, look, I'm one of the sponsors of this thing. I love the way you did. You should come give a TED talk. And I said, a TED talk about what? She said, I don't know, but whatever you were saying in there, it was very good. You should come give it. So actually, I, I didn't have a lot of background going into the TED Talk about what the heck I was supposed to talk about. And when I went, obviously, I realized my previous speech in Switzerland had half the crowd wanting to throw rocks at me. So I needed to give something that was a little bit more appealing. And what I spoke about was accountability, which I think is something that it doesn't matter if you're in sports, if you're in finance, if you're in government, if you're in NGO space, construction, or if you're an artist, accountability is the key to not only your success, but the success of everything that you do. Um, why? Because look, when we started Choose for Africa in high school, like giving you an example of just a bunch of teenagers trying to do something, there was two pathways. We could have not told anyone what we were trying to do and then hoped that eventually we would do it or, what, or do what we did, which was we told everyone, and we made a website. We said, we're going to ship shoes to Africa. We hadn't collected two pairs. And that created massive accountability for us. When I woke up in the morning, I heard my mom say during breakfast, what's going on with your Africa shoes thing? Are you still doing it? Where are you going to get the shoes? When are you going to ship them? When I got to school, my friends would ask me, hey, man, remember that thing you announced and publicized? When are we going to do that? And, you know, that became, that became my challenge. My community, my friends, the people around me. And I think when you're working out, if you work out silently and you keep it to yourself and you don't have goals and you don't have partners in your workout space and you don't tell them, I'm going to do this this week and this next week, no one's going to keep you accountable to your goals. So I, I, I kind of challenged or proposed the crowd that in order to get things done, make yourself accountable by telling people around you what you're going to go to. And we do that every day in Africa today. We're building houses, schools, clinics. We started recently a food distribution business. I mean, a bunch of random things that we do are all because we announce them before we do it. And then people have to hold us accountable to them. And yeah, sometimes they're tough. I mean, you know how hard it is to mix concrete in a town where there's no sand, no stone and no cement four no, hours anyway nearby. <laughs> yeah. In America, you, you pick up the phone 
and you call a ready mix company and you tell them, I want concrete here in two hours mm-hmm. and six trucks will show up and you'll get the exact quantity you asked for at the quality you requested. And it'll get pumped into your shutter boards and you'll get the concrete here. I first had to figure out what concrete was cause I wasn't sure. And then <laughs> I had to go learn what goes into it. Sand, stone, cement, which quantities? And then who sells them? No one sells them. And I have to go talk to a village chief to convince him that he can maybe let me carve out a piece of the mountain that no one uses so that I can mix it so I can make a school for his kids. Great. I'll pay you for it. How much? This much? That much? But you know what drives me to get all of that done? The fact that I told that community I'm going to build a school in there. And if I didn't do that and I found a hurdle that I need to go buy sand from a chief that I've never met in a language I cannot speak, that probably will stop me from continuing my project and will make me quit. And I think if you, you can apply that to anything in your life. If you tell your family that you're going to stop eating pork and the next morning they see you opening a can of, you know, pork or whatever, sausages, you can ask you, hey, didn't you say yesterday you're going to stop eating pork? Say, oh, yeah, yeah, sorry, I'll put it away. You know, it's, it's the minor things to the big things. Accountability is a huge factor in everything you do. Yeah, absolutely. I to, to play devil's advocate here, um, how do you say in, in English, uh, un arma de doble filo? Does that a exist? A double-edged sword. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's, okay, so I think accountability could be a double-edged sword in the sense that when you start telling people about your goals or these like big projects that you have, it gives yourself kind of like a, a false sense of accomplishment that you're already doing it. And this is from personal experience. I remember when I was in, in, in grad school, getting my doctorate in physical therapy, and I thought that I wanted to get a PhD and I liked the sound of it, you know, and I would tell a bunch of people, I'm like, yeah, you know, after, after this doctorate, I'm going to get a, a, a PhD and in, in, uh, epigenetics and it just loved I loved the way that sounded and it, it gave me a false sense of of accomplishment I felt so I do agree that telling people about your goals goals does hold you accountable to a certain degree but I think it's really easy to fall in the trap of uh you know feeling good feeling accomplished and good about yourself just by the simple act of telling people about your goals you know what's interesting we see that all the time in in fitness too just in the uh on the nutrition side of things where some people fall into this rhythm of like committing to a diet or committing to a certain way of eating and just the act of doing that and putting it out there makes them feel good. And it buys them mm-hmm. like, like a little period of time of feeling good where they actually don't take action. Then they fall back to their old yeah. ways and they repeat the process. So they're, they're, yeah. you're right, it is a double-edged sword. So I think there's a difference between telling someone that you have a goal and committing something to that person or or incurring some sort of cost if you don't reach that goal. Like if you're telling a village that you're going to build a road and you don't build it, right. You, you've let down other people in a serious way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. right. If you, sure. if you in it with any product, if you, if you commit to deadlines, if you know, if you have a team, you commit to deadlines and you don't hit those deadlines, like that's, that's a real right cost of, of, of failure. And that might offset the short-term boost you get from just setting a goal. And there's ways to replicate that in fitness is like you, there needs to be a real cost of just not following through. Because right? then all you're going to do is jump from, from think from setting goals to setting goals and get the short-term reward from it and not get the thing you're actually after, Yeah, absolutely. which is success. Yeah, but I'd, I'd love to, I mean, I'd love to challenge you guys for the benefit of anyone who might now not use the accountability thing. I mean, yeah. look, 
I agree with you, Steffi. Like, I remember when you wanted to do a PhD. And I think that was a good thing you did by telling some of your closer people or whomever you told that you wanted to do that and you expected to do that. Mm -hmm. Because it, it gave you the push and inspiration to put yourself in that track. You didn't tell me I got a PhD mm -hmm. and, I got, and I'm walking around with it. And, and you went and you tried it and you put your best effort to it. But now challenge yourself to think about what would have happened if you didn't even have the support system around you to put you through the beginning of that. You know, if you didn't have the opportunities to share with your family and some of your friends that you wanted to do a PhD and you kept it all to yourself, maybe you wouldn't even have filled out the application in the first place. And today you're so much better at who you are and what you want to do because you went through that process and you maybe walked away from it with all the good and bad feelings that came with it, that putting yourself out there actually was part of that, that strategy. I mean, and also being serious and And accountable means that you will not make commitments to things that you think will make you look bad. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in a similar way, I don't tell a community I'm going to build them a school if I don't think that's feasible because I know that accountability will get me. Yeah. So it's also sometimes it also accountability also stops me from saying things that, or trying things that I know I wouldn't do. Yeah. So in a way that you were saying, like that double-edged sword applies to things that I don't even announce anymore. So we used to think, yeah, let's tell every town in this country that we're going to build them a school. We definitely will not do that because <laughs> we will be held accountable. So, yeah, that also applies. I also think in your particular case, Steffi, the, that was like you, you, you said a PhD, but maybe at the time you didn't understand exactly what your interests were and where you wanted to go with things. But it was more so a commitment to higher learning, I think. Same with the Olympics. Right. So you're, you committed, you, you did a doctorate degree, which is a, a slightly different track, but it's, it, it, it's still held with the accountability piece of committing to higher learning. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you said you were going to get a PhD and then you dropped out of high school. Yeah. You know what I mean? You, you were still under that pursuit. You still felt an obligation to, to achieve more because you would put it out there. Yeah. Ultimately, yeah. Because ultimately, whether you achieve your goal or you didn't, it's at least like a commitment to excellence. And that's it's something I talk about, too, is on my wrist, I have three Olympic rings from when I was training to go to the Olympics. And obviously, I didn't know for a fact if I was going to make it to the Olympics or not. But it was a commitment You know, and, and kind of like an outward expression of my dreams to people because everyone can see that. And they ask me, why do you have three Olympic rings? Right. Oh, I want to go to the Olympics. But, you know, whether or not I make it to the Olympics one day, it's it's still a commitment to excellence. Right. To pushing myself in training, to pushing my body and my mind every day to try to achieve a, a, a goal that is impossible for ninety nine point nine percent of people. A hundred percent. I love that. That's a hundred percent it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, hey, let's, uh, before we let you go, because I don't want to take too much of your time, let's uh, touch on Namibia. So what's going on yeah. there? What are you doing? So, I mean, I hate him saying, where is that? <laughs> Namibia is in the south of the continent of Africa. It is right between Angola and South Africa. So most people know South Africa is at the very bottom tip. Namibia is just above to the left. Namibia is about the same size of Venezuela, except Venezuela has 30 million people. And Namibia has about 2.5 million people. Um, Namibia became independent 30 years ago, actually five days before I was born. Um, it's actually quite interesting that it's so close. Um, when I came here for the first time, this is a beautiful country, by the way. I hope many of you who are listening when the lockdown ends and you get to visit places, this is one of the places you go. 
By the way, we only have 16 coronavirus cases and like I think two are left before recovery. All the others are, are doing well. Um, I would say Namibia has deserts and it has rivers and it has mountains and it has coast. It also has diamonds and meat and fish. It's, kind of, it's a country full of resources. But what it has, unfortunately, is also a very sad history. Um, about 100 years ago, the Germans colonized, had colonized Namibia after the Afrikaans War. Um, they had, sorry, they, they had colonized it until about 100 years ago. And they did a massive genocide where a lot of people were killed. Um, they had concentration camps. Two tribes were annihilated, like 90% of the people. And when that ended and they lost the First World War, the British took over Namibia and they annexed it as a province of South Africa. So they took an entire country the size of Venezuela and they told them, you know what, now you're part of SA. And they applied something that a lot of people have heard about. I mean, a lot of people have heard about Nelson Mandela, which was like the liberator of the apartheid regime in South Africa. So Namibia was also under apartheid. Apartheid was basically a law that made black people have no rights, which is crazy because 90% of people in Namibia are black. <laughs> so you had no rights. You couldn't own property. You couldn't get water, electricity, sewerage. If you wanted to come work in any city or town, you have to get a special permit. In 1990, the government becomes independent. Uh, black Namibians get into power, into politics, and they made an amazing and probably a decision I wouldn't have made if I was in their position, I'm, I'm being that honest they decided for a peaceful route. They said, fine, anyone who is white, who had land, you can keep your land, but we're happy to now be able to have rights in our country. So instead of fighting and entering a civil war like most African countries entered right after colonial times, Namibia just went for like some random peaceful route where they just said, let's just rebuild instead of destroy. So Namibia is extremely peaceful. And when the government came into power, they did something amazing, which is, they started building schools and clinics and police stations, all the basic services around every region of the country. So when I arrived in Namibia 24 years after its independence in 2014, I traveled around the country and I found schools, clinics, hospitals, police stations, fire stations, but no houses. So people who were making a thousand or $2,000 a month working as police officers, well paid if you ask me, working as teachers, working as nurses, had to either rent government housing, had to share housing with other people who had managed to build and scrap something up, or had to live like most people in informal houses made out of zinc sheets, aluminum sheets. And the government had just created an amazing subsidy program that allowed people to borrow money uh, with a subsidy from banks which made sure that, you know, in Venezuela, when they build houses, all the contractors stole the money. You know, you pay the contractor to build houses and they keep half of the money for themselves. In Namibia, what they did was, instead of giving money to the contractors to build, they gave money to the consumer to borrow. And they said, if you buy a house, we'll sponsor part of your loan. So now that made the builders have to finish a product that was good looking and strong for people to be able to then buy it and accept the loan into it. So that created efficiencies in that market. I came to Namibia not knowing what the heck I was doing. I was 24, just turned 24. And I bought three little pieces of land with my credit card. Like I withdrew money. It was super small in a little town, like five hours from the capital. And I built three houses. The town didn't want to send, sell me more land. So I started registering everyone who wanted to buy them. And I got 600 army officers who wanted to buy, or 
know, soldiers who wanted to buy those three houses. And I went to the papers and I published an article about how I had three houses for 600 people and I didn't know how to sell them. So the, gov- the government came back to me and sold me more land. Then I built 30 more houses. And then from there, we started, you know, we started trying to figure out where else can we build houses in the country? And that's where technology came in. We actually, I hired, I actually try to hire men, but men suck at interviewing people in villages because a guy can actually um, make a woman not feel safe about telling her salary in a small village, especially from gender issues and stuff like that. So I, I hired a team of 10 women and they are incredible. A lot of them are still working with us today, five, six years later. And we started digitalizing towns. We would go town by town around the country where people thought there was no business opportunity. And we would survey every school, every police station, every clinic. And we would ask everyone that was working there, do you need a house? And we would map those people up in heat maps. And we would try to figure out how much money do they make? How many kids they have? What can we build for them? And then we'd go negotiate with those towns to say, can we buy land from you? And they would say, no. Then I would say, well, let us show you, let us show you our data. And then we would get in and show them, wow, there's actually a market demand. And they said, no, we know there's a market demand, but we don't want to build houses right now. Imagine, it was so backwards. Like, there's no houses. No one's coming to your town to build. And here we are trying to offer to, like, help and do this at an affordable rate. And then when we showed, this was incredible, when we showed them data of how many people were crashing at their friends' houses, and we explained that, like, 60% of people who live in this town crash at someone's house. And that means that 60% of the people we interviewed could actually be paying rates and taxes to your municipality if they had their own property. And, you know, that's so obvious in some of the emerged markets, but when we were able to conceptualize all the data we collected into money for the municipalities on a monthly basis, which is really what makes cities grow, we started building real partnerships with, with towns. Today, that business also we built schools with NGOs so we raise money from NGOs outside the country we identify schools that need um, expansion we found schools with right now we're building a school for 500 kids in a village who are studying under trees I mean it's unbelievable we're, we're building a coronavirus clinic in the capital with another NGO right now in case coronavirus hits bigger and we need a clinic uh, we've built clinics before. We're, we're building contractors also privately. So on a very for-profit basis, we're building warehouses. And then we started a tech company called Operfin. Outside of the construction business, we have a tech company that gives digital loans. So in America, there's a few startups that are now giving mortgages online. You don't have to go to the bank anymore. And we discovered that that was an amazing opportunity too. So that's something we've, we've now ventured in is to giving loans online like digitalizing the process. It's a really slow process, paper-based. And this year, we just kicked off a very exciting business in food distribution. So, you know, when you where, where do you guys buy your food? Where do we buy food? Like what store or, yeah. th- or through what? Yeah, way? what store? Um, where, where do you? Whole Foods, Costco, Trader Joe's. <laughs> there's a, and there's a local place, uh, Milam's Market. Yeah. But yeah. we use a, an app usually to get it delivered to the house. Instacart. So now, now I go to a very fancy supermarket. It has every vegetable you can think of, every food you can think of. Now, the capital of Namibia is called Vintuk. We have, I think, 56% of the population lives in informal settlement, what we would call in Venezuela, Steffi, barrios, okay, in mountains and stuff like that. There's no water access, no electricity, no sewage. It's unbelievable the conditions that 30 years later, and, and I mean, this is an inherited condition from a historical context, 
a lot of families still have to endure. Now, where do you think these families buy their food? Because they eat, right? Local farm or market? Local little shops in her neighbor's house. So every 20 shops or every 20 houses or 30 little houses, there's a lady who opened a little hole in her, you know, zinc sheet that makes her house. She put a little sign outside that says Teresa shop. And she sells you maize meal, which is like very similar to polenta in Italy or what you would call like a flour that they eat. That's the basic staple food. It's very similar to an arepa, but it's a boiled, you know, to my, uh, it's actually maize meal, it's harina de maiz. Harina de maiz. Um, so they sell maize meal, they sell canned meat, canned fish. They sell non-perishable food items that they can hold. So what we, what we thought is, okay, we've been digitalizing towns forever. Why don't we go try to digitalize these food markets, these food little shops and find out how many there are. Mm-hmm. This year, in in the first couple of weeks, we registered 375 shops that were interested in maybe being distributed to directly. So now what happens is this lady, Teresa, I'm telling you about, buys her food at the supermarket, takes a taxi there that costs her money, takes a taxi back, spends half her day buying food to then go and sell in her market, which she then has to sell at a much higher price. So what we've done is... We've mapped out all these shops. We know where they are. We have profiles on them. We've built it into our own digital like distribution app. And we made deals with distributors and manufacturers of food. So we buy it much cheaper than what the supermarkets sell it for. And we now have about 17 sales agents selling food directly to all of these shops every day. And we have little trucks that will distribute them every day on a same day delivery. So in a way, this is what I was telling you guys earlier is that Here's a business opportunity, right? This is, um, this is what you call last mile fulfillment, exactly what Amazon does to Ian's delivery. But we're helping lower transportation costs to zero. We do free delivery. And we sell either at the same price as supermarket sells to this lady or even a little bit cheaper. And that's the impact is that you can bring more nutrition to someone's home if you can lower prices. Mm-hmm. You can bring more food into little corners of informal settlements if you can actually identify them as an opportunity and as a business, not as a charitable giving, you know? Why did you choose that route rather than finding a way to open more shops in small villages? So, I mean, in, in the example I just gave you, it's actually in the capital. So I'm talking about, you know, the capital in Namibia maybe has 400,000 people. I think more than 200,000 people live in the informal settlements. No supermarket or shop will ever open a store there for three reasons. No roads, no water, no electricity. Okay. And the population density is so high that I think they would even be afraid to work in those areas. We, our employees are from those areas. They live there. They sell to those shops. And our drivers know exactly those routes to go distribute to those shops. We think that's the best business opportunity, you know? Again, we, we're not a supermarket chain. We're more of like a, a, wholesale, a wholesaler distributor in that sense. And it's a new business we started. It's called Jabu, J-A-B-U. Have you rolled that out yet or is that coming? No, we, we, we just rolled it out in the past couple of weeks. Steffi was just trying to talk to me and, and, I, and I've been like, I told her I have a hundred something messages. A lot of it is because <laughs> my phone number leaked to some shops. So I, it wasn't supposed to be my phone number that goes to the shops, but I've been getting orders with like, Hey, can I get 20 cans of meat and 20 cans of fish and 10 packs of maize meal? I'm like, no, I don't distribute. Call the drivers. <laughs> or use so, the app. So you keep saying we. Are there uh, 
who are your partners in this? Are there different partners for different businesses or is there like a core group of people kind of working on all these uh, different things at once? So I, I learned early on to always say we, even if it's just me for two reasons. <laughs> One, out of, out, of, out, of respect, out of respect for the people who work under you, which yeah. is which is valuable and many of them one day could hear this and and also because and, and this is more of a marketing thing it's just you never want to think make people think that it's just you coming up with the ideas and i think there's value in thinking that someone has that someone has a team so yeah i mean two of my brothers work with me we have people in our company from other countries that you know, there's an architect from colombia when we build a school for example she's it's her designs it's her ideas but yeah i am the owner of the company in that sense, it's, it is just me. But in, in the end, you know, with my brothers, I'm partnering with one of my brothers, my youngest brother, Ari, we're starting a, um, a motorcycle dealership in Namibia and it's, it's him, but it's, it's, we, you know, we're doing it together. Um, in the construction business, my brother, Sammy runs a brick making factory. We went to China, bought equipment. We have a brick making factory in the center of the country and we're now making thousands of bricks a day as a side business, you know, there's dozens of people that contribute to every one of the things we do every day. And, and I think it's always we, even if sometimes it's just you. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I thought we were busy. Yeah. What the hell? Yeah. It's super interesting to do capital intensive businesses in places where capital is much cheaper than, yeah. You know, than the places we normally inhabit. Um, yeah, no, I mean, look, try, yeah. we'll try to start making a brick making factory in Miami, Florida. Like good luck. I mean, rental will kill you before month one. In my case, that's, also, I to the yeah. that's how you launder money in Miami is you start a brick factory. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so yeah, don't do that. Don't start that. Um, okay, so now the million dollar question before we let you go. Um, are you still single? <laughs> that's I'm question. still single. Yeah, 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 I'm still single. How's yeah. that possible? I work hard. I mean, I, leave the, I, I left the office early today, but I live in with lockdown. I mean, it's even harder, but I work hard. I'm very focused in what I do. I've dated. It's not that I've been single for 10 years, but you know, right now I'm single. I think, um, I know what I'm looking for and I'd rather, I'd rather continue working hard on what I'm doing. And when I, when I, when I think I found what I like, I, I might get into a relationship. I respect that. I don't know if you know, but I have a doctorate in, uh, being the best wingman that has ever lived. So <laughs> that has ever lived. Yeah. <laughs> cool. She's pretty well, good. So, you, you know, know they this say is- that if you, if you do three good, Three good matches, you go straight to heaven. Is that it? Rocio got married. That doesn't matter what. Who yeah. else? I don't know. Have you done three good matches? I think I'm at one. She, one that's ended in a marriage. Yeah. So, wow, I mean, this good. this was an informal plug. So, <laughs> I mean, I'll take 100% of the credit if you end up getting married with anyone who listened to this podcast. Uh, cool Um, i appreciate that awesome and so where can uh people find you if you're interested in being found and keep instagram or youtube or twitter or not at all yeah no i'm I'm excited to be found why not i mean look (laughs) we are always happy we're happy to be found for many reasons and you can see and i'm saying we and she was asking about me (laughs) um I, it's, it, by the way, I'll say this quickly. I also made a big mistake early on many years ago, um, which I keep close to my heart. And I think it was not something I, you know, I was speaking at that Ted talk and I started shoes for Africa with a close friend of mine who was probably my best friend growing up. And I hope I can always still call him one of my best friends. And this guy, Joel and I started shoes for Africa. And when I gave the tech talk, there was a picture of him in the back, but I kept talking about, I, 
about how I did this and how I felt about this and how I felt about that. And that really, that really took a toll in our relationship after when he brought it up to me and he brought it up to me and I had no idea about it. And you know, it, it was my mistake. And we, we, we got over that. I learned very early on that like, you've never done anything yourself alone, even if it's you who's talking about the feelings you've had and, and how you're doing them. And I think if there's any tip anyone can take out of this is that always use we, I think it's, it's so valuable and it just goes such a long way with, with the people who, who have given so much to you to get there that it makes a big, it makes a big difference. So in that context, if you want to find us, um, you know, there's so many ways that, that we're happy to be found. We, we have people who come do internships here. who just want to take a break in life and want to work in Africa. And one of the things we do, we have people who do that and then end up working full time. We have people who want to just travel and want to have a friend in Namibia who will receive them at the airport when they arrive. So that also works. I'm on Facebook. My name is David Akinin, A-K-I-N-I-N. You can reach out. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, on Instagram, our company, Atenu Developments, which does a bunch of construction projects, has an Instagram page. Um, I'm Daviaki on Instagram, D-A-V-I-A-K-I. But I mean, yeah, just, I'm sure like if you just look up my name on Facebook, my name pops up and you can shoot me a message about anything. If, if you have a question about what you're doing and need some advice, or if you just want to hear more about what we do, want to invest, want to donate, wanna, whatever it is in any of the projects we do, I would be super excited to, to be in touch. I mean, that's that's what life is about being in touch. I love that. Hey, uh, just this, I guess this is for me. Do you have, are you big into personal development books? Or no? Um, I don't think, I don't think I'm big necessarily into any genre. I've read a few of them and some of them have been great. And some of them I just put down because I feel annoyed, but yeah. Okay. I guess like then, then this is my question. What is the, what's the book that's impacted your life, uh, in the most meaningful way? Okay. So then it wouldn't be a personal development book because those are meant to impact your life explicitly. And I think the ones that really get to me are the ones that I managed to create with like you read something and you let your imagination tell you why this is inspiring to you. Okay. Um, recently, I mean, I'll tell you something about that I read recently that is popular out there that I think would be great for anyone who hasn't read it. And that's shoe dog. That's the Nike book. Um, yeah, guys, it's a great mm -hmm. book. I mean, really when good. I was reading that, when I was reading that book, And, and that guy was on a date. I remembered every date I had. I felt so identified. He was chasing a woman. I felt like that was me chasing a woman. When he was negotiating with suppliers that he wanted to get the best price for shoes, I thought I was negotiating with my, the meat factory that sells us cans of meat or the cement factory that we're trying to buy cement from. I mean, I saw myself so much in that book that it inspired me to keep pushing because especially that book talked about so many failures, you know? He felt so many times his company was going to go bankrupt so many times. And today we were Nikes, like, like I said, it's the, the only thing that ever existed, you know? And you can see him as a reseller of shoes when he started. He was just selling other people's things. So that, that was super exciting. But I, I think there's a, there's a book that has stayed with me from when I was 11. My dad gave me a book called Ride the Golden Tiger from Jonathan Black. Probably a book nobody has read. He read it in the 70s and he had a copy of it. And riding the golden tiger in Spanish, it's called Oro. And it was about a guy who learned the, the mining industry in the gold industry. I was 11 reading this book. I had no idea what the gold industry was. And he fell in love. He fell in love with the owner of the gold industry daughter. And he became an international trader and he traveled the world. And I was an 11 year old. I mean, 
I got excited reading the book. I got inspired reading the book. And I thought one day I want to be an international businessman like this guy. Wow. And, you know, when I travel, sometimes I think of the story I read when I was 11, some guy traveling the world. I love That's that. Amazing. Awesome. That's a great place to stop. Hey, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it and for coming on as no, a guest at Hybrid Unlimited. And uh, man, don't be a stranger. Like I haven't talked to you in like, I don't know, five years or something. So <laughs> yeah, no, a hundred percent. When the flights are back and I'm back in Miami, I'd love to meet. I mean, Ian, are you also in, in South Florida? Yep. Yeah. Just let me know when you're in towns. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I would love that. I would love that. Sefi, connect us all, maybe on an email or Facebook. would love to be in touch with all of you. I will. Absolutely. Thank awesome. you so much, Thanks. man. Have Amazing. a good night. Thanks, guys. Let me know how everything goes. Bye. I will. Bye. Yeah, wonderful chat. Nice to meet you.